in Global Development and Peace from the University of Bridgeport. And that was in the May of 2011, where he also named the Global Development and Peace Department as uh, Best Student of the Year. And prior to that, Vincent attended the University of Missouri, Columbia, he finished his bachelor's degree in economics, and that was in 2004. He also served as president of the African Association, and his other occupational experience includes working as an educator at Stanford Public Schools in Connecticut from 2009 to 2011. And before that, Vincent worked in the private sector, where he served as a sales manager of Rexel Incorporated in Farfax, in Fairfax, Farfax, Virginia and that was in 2006 until 2008. And while in Washington, D.C. area, Vincent worked during his spare time as a staff writer for the African Nation, which is a community-based publication in Silver Springs, Maryland, between the years of 2005 and 2008. Vincent was born in Sagida and raised uh, there as well, and where he completed his primary education before moving to Masi, Tanzania, for his O-level and A-level secondary education. After working briefly as a secondary school teacher in Orissa, Tanzania, between the years of 1994 and 1996, Vincent relocated to the United States to pursue his further studies. He devoted a lot of his time to promote community development initiatives, and until re very recently, he volunteered his time serving as the Secretary General of the New York Tanzanian Community, an organization that promotes unity and economic empowerment of the Tanzanian community in, New York, in the New York City metropolitan area. Vincent enjoys reading, writing, hiking, and jogging on his spare time. Our second guest, Brother Philip Louisa, is the Director of Finance for AFRICARD. Philip is responsible for setting the overall direction and He manages day-to-day -day matters and meets individually with clients to assess their project needs. Brother Philip was born in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and immigrated to the United States at the age of seven. Philip Louisa holds a bachelor's degree in business administration and a concentration in accounting from the University at Buffalo. And Philip has nearly a decade of experience offering consulting services as a certified public accountant. So my two brothers, Brother Vincent and Philip, are you there? Uh, yes. yes, we're here, Baba. Thank you very much for a very, very good uh, introduction. Oh, it's my pleasure, and uh, thank you for sharing your Sunday evening with us. Um, I'm really uh, excited and, and delighted uh, to have you as guests on, on our show. Um, it's really ironic that, indeed, uh, we're meeting each other, or should I say greeting each other on our show, on the week of Thanksgiving, uh, and indeed, I give thanks uh, to the Most High for bringing us together. Uh, what I'd like to do to start off the show, and I must mention also that my lovely wife uh, is here with us. Uh, hi, hi, how are you doing? Hello, good evening, everyone. Hello, Vincent and Philip. Good to speak with you again. How are you? 
Thank you very good, very good. It's good to talk to you since that uh, day that we had uh, such a beautiful dinner. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> so glad you enjoyed it. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. We must do that again sometime soon. Yes, yes, we should. <laughs> what I'd like to do this before we go on into and, and talking about uh, what you and uh, the two of you are doing with Africard, I'd like to start off by sharing with the listening audience how uh, I got to meet the two of you. Um, I guess we can start off in terms of the fact that uh, my wife and I live here in, in, uh, in Stuyvesant Heights, Brooklyn, New York, and it just so happened that uh, I happened to be visiting a barbershop who uh, I happened to meet through my wife and um, her godfather, uh, Brother Bay, Bay's Barbershop. And uh, it seemed as if... Uh, it was like destined for us to, for myself and brother Philip to meet there. Uh, it just so happened that I had been, uh, as I always do, talking about our community and uh, here in Bed-Stuy, uh, Brooklyn, and of course throughout the United States and throughout the African diaspora. And somehow or other, I started talking about Nelson Mandela. And um, there was an elder brother. Even though I'm 67 years of age, I guess you might say I'm a junior elder. <laughs> But there was a brother in his 80s who happened to hear me talking about Nelson Mandela to, uh, with our, our uh, barber, uh, Brother Bay. And he felt that he needed to interject that he didn't feel that Nelson Mandela deserved the accolades that he received. But little did he know that I wasn't just talking about him. I happened to be uh, a participant in the, Nelson, uh, in the welcoming committee for Nelson Mandela when he came here to the United States, and he chose Brooklyn under the uh, inspiration of Brother G2 Yusi, who's a, uh, a very important leader in our community here in uh, New York City and actually throughout the country as an educator, uh, as a political uh, a, a strategist, and an activist. And he was the one who negotiated with Nelson Mandela's team to persuade him, rather than come to Harlem, that he would come here to Brooklyn, and more specifically to Boys and Girls High School, and I participated as a as a marshal in the welcoming committee. And um, the brother, the elder, going back to him, he felt that he didn't uh, deserve the accolades because he didn't do the ultimate sacrifice, which was sacrificing his life, like some of his comrades did, as he mentioned. And needless to say, I took, uh, 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 you know, indifference to that, that particular sentiment, and uh, little did I realize that Philip, who was getting his hair cut, uh, was listening in. And, uh, <laughs> and, and after the judgment left, uh, Philip made a comment. Uh, would you like to share some thoughts about that, Philip? Uh, yes. Uh, again, I wanted to reiterate Vincent's uh, thank you for having me on the show and both of us here. And, uh, yes, we're. I was listening to... Uh, Brother, uh, Brother Wesley really engaged in, uh, I guess, a, a spirited discussion on the uh, attributes of Nelson Mandela, and uh, I felt that maybe he, you know, he needed somebody else in the room to also, uh, you know, support his view, which I thought was, you know, obviously correct. But uh, it, it was just interesting to see such, you know, conversation occurring in a barbershop and you know, in, in this part of Brooklyn that I was very new to. And uh, I, uh, I I later spoke to him afterwards when we were finished with our 
our haircuts, and we really found that we had common grounds in our, you know, our belief in the power of the community and actually making change happen. And uh, that later led on to our continuous discussion of things where I was invited to his uh, lovely house with his lovely wife, uh, who really, you know, uh, I think really took me in as, you know, I guess uh, the, the the leaders of the Brooklyn community. And uh, me being new to the Brooklyn community, I was very happy to meet them. They're incredibly warm. And so this is basically, I guess, the beginning of our relationship that's continuing to grow. And I'm incredibly pleased by what we've been going through. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, quite a story. And, uh, again, I, I thank the Most High. I thank God uh, for um, making the arrangements, because, as we know, nothing happens by accident, that everything is in divine order. Um, so, yes, with that being said, uh, the audience now can get in a, somewhat of a picture of, of the dynamics of how uh, many of us come together for different reasons and for different causes. But I cannot think of any more uh, of a significant cause for uh, men and women. And, but in this case, we have three men, myself and Brother Benson and Philip, who've come together because of the fact that we have a certain journey in common and a purpose in our life in terms of fulfillment and being a, uh, uh, a contributor to the solution that uh, is needed by our brothers and sisters throughout the African diaspora. So uh, I, I have some questions that I'd like to, to uh, uh, direct to both of you, and, uh, and particularly uh, Brother uh, Vincent. We had been, you know, in discussion, uh, you know, and talk with one another for the last few days, and uh, some things that have come to mind. And number one. And I guess both of you can share the same response, I mean, share the same question and respond accordingly. But why did you, uh, Brother Vincent, decide to establish AfriCard? And, and was it that someone inspired you, or was it based on a feeling of duty or obligation to do something to humanity or for humanity? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, you know, Brother Wesley, uh, Baba uh, Gray, for. First of all, for, uh, you know, welcoming us and, uh, you know, in this uh, radio show. Uh, and uh, it's just amazing that you were able to actually meet Philip uh, in that kind of setting, <laughs> talking about Nelson Mandela. Uh, yeah. and, and, and it's just, uh, you know, I, I, I always say that things don't happen for, you know, there's always a reason that things happen. And, and I think uh, our meeting... Uh, was destined to happen. Uh, I I started having this this idea of uh, of founding an organization that that basically, you know, goes back to the community to make a difference. You know, m many many years ago, I, I, I just I, I should say that uh, uh, right before I came to the United States, uh, 13 years ago, you know, I was I always uh, had I was had this calling from, you know, inside me that I needed to do something positive for humanity. Uh, Tanzania, like many other poor countries in the, in the continent of Africa, you know, has a, a, a bad, maybe well, bad-managed education system. So I always wanted to, to get a 
better quality education. And somehow, you know, uh, you know, miracles happened, and I was able to come to the United States and uh, and decided to, uh, you know, pursue my bachelor's studies in economics with the idea mm. that, you know, I would learn, uh, you know, various skills and knowledge sets. That would allow me to uh, to basically go back to my communities and and make a difference. Um, mm. So I came to uh, you know I came here to uh, Bridgeport and uh, attended Universal Bridgeport for uh, my master's studies in global development, which is basically economic development, and mm. uh, you know finished in May this past May, and uh, so. As I said, you know, two years ago I started putting down the frameworks on how how to found this organization, and and luckily uh, just a month ago, uh, you know, Afrocode was founded was was incorporated in the state of Connecticut as a non for profit organization that is uh, going to be involved in community development and empowerment in in, in African poor communities. The poor communities in Africa. We're going to start our operations in the country of Tanzania. Uh, that's my native, my native country. Uh, and then we plan to actually expand to other African countries, uh, you know, empowering people. We're going to address issues of education for, for boys and girls. In this part of the world, uh, so many children who are actually uh, have a lot of potential are not able to to gain education because of poverty, sometimes because of very, very things that are taken for granted here, you know, not having school uniforms, not having pencils or, or books and, and what have you. So so this organization was founded to, to do just that, to address these issues, issues of education. We're also going to address issues of health. So many, so many, as you know, uh, Baba, there are so many people who die of HIV AIDS in Africa. Not just mm -hmm. AIDS. We're talking of malaria. We're talking of tuberculosis. We're talking of cholera because of, you know, drinking poor, um, well, well dead, dead water. So, mm -hmm. so all these are going to be addressed in one way or another through this, this uh, organization, AfroCorp. Wonderful. I'm encouraged. I just was thinking the fact that I've seen many, um, I wouldn't say commercials, but uh, um, many documentaries and clips of um, various countries in Africa uh, which are impoverished, relatively speaking, more than the average. And uh, it seems as if most of the people who lead these organizations are of European descent, and it's encouraging to have met you, to have you and Philip over for dinner, and for you to share with me. I didn't, wasn't prepared for the uh, how uh, encompassing and how uh, uh, ambitious your particular mission is with the organization of uh, AfroCard, uh, and the fact that uh, it's being led by you, a, a brother. Of, of African, an African brother, um, and of course uh, assisted by uh, Brother Philip and and others in your organization. So that was so encouraging for me, and as well as my wife, uh, to to uh, to hear that and and for us to have a discussion amongst ourselves. 
So I applaud both of you for uh, uh, being part of a, a mission that's, uh, you know, very, very commendable. Uh, so that's how you, you got the, the inspiration to start AfroCard. And the next question I have is, where do you see this organization in the next five to ten years? How do you uh, get there and, and how do you expect to get the funding for your organization in order to accomplish um, your missions? Well, they, they, we believe that the mission for this organization is shared by, by so many people, not only in the black community in America, not only in the African communities, but also people from all over the world. There yes. are people who uh, don't necessarily live in, the, in in Africa or Tanzania, for that matter, who who would like to participate or or do something, touching life. You know, so we so we think that you know the the goal that we have, the challenge that we have is to actually sell sell ourselves, to to. Uh, to promote our organization out there, and and we believe we're going to have a lot of supporters. We're going to have a lot of support from so many people. We are talking of companies. We're talking of uh, governmental institutions, the agencies. We're talking of uh, you know businesses and all of the above. You know, we're going to try to raise funds, and and this platform, this this the, the radio show that we are in today tonight, <laughs> is part of it. You know, we, hmm. we know you have uh, you, a, a huge set of uh, a, a great audience out there. You know, so people, we encourage people to visit our website, www.afrocode.org. Afrocode, A-F-R-O-C-O-D.org. And, and we we plan we plan to uh, to build this organization. As I said, we built it we built it from the from the scratch. And I'm actually traveling to Tanzania uh, three weeks from today. And I'm going to be there for several months, you know, laying down the foundation for this organization. This organization was uh, established and uh, founded in, in the United States. But we are going to have our operations in Tanzania and, and uh, you know, moving on to, moving on to other countries in, in, in Africa. Uh, and uh, that requires, you know, it requires... Uh, some kind of dedication, not just some kind of dedication. It requires a lot of dedication, and also, uh, you know, commitment. So, so you cannot have a functional organization while you are living in the United States. <laughs> you know, so, so I I work now at the University of Bridgeport as an adjunct professor, but I'm going to mm -hmm. take off for a few months and already talk to my my bosses about that. And I'm uh, going to be in Tanzania, you know, laying down the foundation for this organization, promoting it, raising funds, you know, doing all that needs to be done uh, for this mission to come to fruition. Mm. Wonderful. Well, uh, indeed, uh, from what you just shared, it seems as if uh, you have not to worry about the support. Uh, it's just a matter of those uh, who are waiting for you you know, to give the marching orders, as it were. Um, the next question I have is something that involves promotion uh, of education. As you mentioned earlier, the boys and girls in, in, in your country and other countries in Africa uh, have a need. It's, you know, this an arduous challenge in terms of fulfilling that need. Um, but the education for the young people 
is one of AFRICARD's goals. What kind of challenges do governments in Africa face in terms of promoting education for their children? And also, you mentioned that you have been a teacher here in the United States for a number of years. And how can you comment uh, of the African, or should I say the American educational system as compared to Tanzania's? Uh, if you were to recommend on uh, possible reforms, what would that be? Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good question. And in a loaded question, I should may add. <laughs> Uh, there, there are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of challenges in this uh, in in Africa uh, in terms of education, and because many governments in Africa uh, are not able to to provide uh, educational services and fundings for their schools. So there mm -hmm. are there are thousands and maybe and millions of children who are actually not able to go to school because of the things I said earlier, you know, not having a pencil, not having $10, you know, to pay for, for school fees, not being able to, 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 because of poverty, you know, many of these kids cannot afford school uniform. You know, as you know, mo most of these countries were, were, were colonies, Europe, you know, were, colon were colonized by European powers. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's a requirement, for instance, for for school children to have uniform, <laughs> to have the school uniform, mm. you know, and it is a requirement for one to go to school. You know, my mm. experience here in the United States, you know, a, a, a child doesn't need, the, you know, to have school uniform in order to go to elementary school or middle school or high school, you know, or, or higher, 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 higher levels, you know, but in, in some of these communities, you know, something such as a pencil or a school uniform or not having a book would actually, you know, disallow a student an opportunity to go to school. So so governments in Africa are suffering from, uh, you know, higher levels of, uh, I should say, corruption because there are so many, there are so much resources in the continent of Africa. In Tanzania, for instance, you know, we, we, we have natural resources such as minerals and and everything you 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 think of, you know, but somehow uh, you know governments are not able to to provide good education for for their children. But 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 the 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 point I'm saying that is is because uh, it is actually there's a belief that it's not only the the role of the government to ensure you know that education is provided to children. I think it's also the 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 responsibility of parents and. And, and the civil society organizations such as Afrocourt to chip in to make a difference. You know, it's, 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 it takes a multifaceted effort for for these kind of programs to to, 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 to to happen. So we're going to try to do that. We're going to try to do that. Um, there are going to be challenges, yes, uh, you know, but 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 everything is doable if there is a, a, a will and the determination uh, to make a difference. So we are going to, you know, get our hands dirty and, and uh, get to work and promote, you know, all these things that our organization stands for. And I'm, I'm so blessed to have, uh, you know, such brothers like like Philip, you know, who are into this organization. Uh, and we have actually uh, seven other people. Uh, you have a team of eight people in total, 
who are very qualified individuals who have agreed we are doing this as volunteers. <laughs> We're not pay, being paid by anybody. Actually, people like me are, you know, leaving, I'm leaving my, my job aside to go to do that on volunteer basis with the aim of raising money or doing whatever needs to be done to help these children, you know, achieve their dream. Mm. Yes, uh, that's an interesting piece you, you talk about in terms of getting uh, funds together so that you can just get basic materials such as pencils and, and writing pads and, of course, indeed, uniforms. Uh, the uniform is very symbolic uh, of a sense of belonging and also a sense of order. And that's something that it's very much needed. We have very school institutions, my wife being a, a former school teacher, you know, she shared with me some very succinct um, experiences in terms of the educational system, especially here in New York City. And, and one of the primary things that, that we have a problem with with our children is that they're so much impressed and influenced by the, the media, or should I say by the, the, the music culture, and, and certain cultures such as uh, hip-hop and rap and so forth, and, and those uh, uh, that promote lower self-orientation as opposed to higher self. And no pun in, intended, but we're talking about children who, young boys particularly, and older young, young men who wear their pants uh, below their, their waist, you know, the, the baggy pants, but the, what they call the, the sagging pants. Sagging, sagging, and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And 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 that's, you know, very symbolic of lower self orientation, low self esteem, or not having a clue of what is necessary for one to really just do a very just a basic fundamental task of dressing properly so that one can be in a proper mindset to uh to educate themselves or to become educated by others. And like you said, it's responsibility of the parents. It starts at home. And that's something that uh, we have dropped the ball on. We have uh, many of us in our community here in the United States, and I guess in other Western communities, because I found out recently that uh, hip-hop is, is, is prevalent uh, throughout Europe and other countries, and indeed in the motherland of Africa, throughout the African diaspora. So uh, I just wanted to share that, that particular observation and, uh, and 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 just to get a sense that by your efforts through AfriCards efforts that indeed uh, this will be the beginning of the change, not just of the youth in your country, but also throughout the African diaspora and indeed throughout the world. Yes, I, sh I may add. Uh, you asked earlier about about you know my experience, uh, you know, having been uh, you know a teacher here in the United States, actually in uh, the state of Connecticut. Uh, you know, for the last two years, I've worked in the you know Stanford public school system uh, as a substitute teacher, actually, while while undertaking my uh, my master's. Uh, studies at Universal Bridgeford. So I would work during the day uh, in the schools in, St in Stanford, uh, Connecticut, 
uh, you know, high schools, middle schools, elementary schools, you know, substitute teachers basically get to go to, you go to where there's a, a slot, where the the teacher is absent, so you go and cover for that, you know. So so I have had a lot of uh, interaction with so many of these children, you know, again, from uh, first grade to high school. And, uh, and it's amazing to, to see that, uh, you know, when you spend the whole day, you know, in the classroom with these children, you get to learn a lot. And uh, mm. and I'm always flabbergasted. I'm always, uh, it's amazing to see, for instance, uh, you know, many of the children of color, you know, black children uh, and Hispanics, you know, doing so poorly in, uh, you know, in school. Uh, and you're talking of reforms, I think in one of the questions you asked, you, you asked you know, was, uh, you know, what kind of possible reforms I, I would think of maybe re- recommending. You know, I know the United States law here, you have the No, no Child Left Behind Act and all that. You know, mm-hmm. but what my experience has been that, you know, this, this grouping of children, the ranking of children, you know, you know, children are grouped into different classrooms depending on their the levels of competency. You know, those, those who are not doing very well are put in one group. You know, and and oftentimes you see, you find, you know, a class full of uh, black children. And, uh, oh, you know, as we know, we you know, the America, black America has gone through a lot of uh, historical, you know, challenges, many of which have played a role in the kind of children we have today. Many of mm-hmm. the children have don't have parents. You know, many of the fathers are in jail, you know, so... These children basically, you know, don't have parents when they go home, and that affects them. It affects their level of uh, educational competence, you know. So, so grouping them in a, a class, you know, uh, described as ADD case, you know, I think is doing injustice to these children. So, so when we, you know, a, a reform that I would think, you know, if I were in a position of making these changes was, Maybe undo this system of 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 ranking or segregating children in different classrooms based on their their reading skills, you know, levels or math levels. Because most of most of those who end up uh, being in, in in classes that are so chaotic are often those who are behind in these levels for for faults of you know for things that are actually not their fault. So uh, there are so many so many so many, you know, challenges going on. But we're mm. going to, you know, we're going to try to to address some of these issues, in, you know, when when I go back to Tanzania. Uh, I, I know they probably have similar challenges, but, 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 but you know, in America, you know, you're talking of a, a, a different host of challenges that, you know, have to be tackled with. Mm-hmm. So what comes to mind is the fact that you have certain countries which uh, do not have the separation, a distinction of, of class and, and uh, intellectual ability. And they have it, I think, in terms of understanding that children are able to assimilate far more better if they interact with one another from different levels, different class levels, different different uh, family, socioeconomical structure. And what comes to mind is the communist or socialist countries, and I 
was taken back when you told me that your country, Tanzania, was a socialist country. Uh, up until recently, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, the practice socialism, you know, during the Cold War, when you had this uh, conflict between the United States and Soviet Union. You had, the, you know, I guess a competition or dispute between uh, capitalism and communism, you know. So many of, the, many of these countries in Africa, you know, after they became independent, they 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 became uh, they were preyed by these world powers. So you had the Soviet Union, you know, <laughs> on the one hand, and you had the United States and other, you know, Western countries on the other hand, you know. So so somehow Tanzania uh, you know, adopted uh, you know socialist policies, you know, uh, based on the Chinese or Russian system, you know, and uh, and we have had uh, well pros and cons with that, you know. Mm. Uh, I guess one of the one of the the, the the pros, one of the benefits of the system was, uh, I, I guess we were able to uh, because, for instance, my parents were not, you know, didn't have the the capacity or the ability to send me to school, you know. So because of that system, I was able to go to a primary school and a secondary school, and and somehow, you know, I'm talking to you now. You know, but but on the other hand, you know, we we, we all know what what uh, communism brings, you know, bring about, which is uh, these higher levels of uh, you know corruption and, and what have you, you know, that that many of these countries are still suffering from. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that that's very interesting. I, I know earlier this this evening we were talking about uh, uh, Kwame Nkrumah and. Um, him uh, being such a uh, a warrior and uh, being the one responsible, a major one responsible for uh, Ghana being the first African country to gain independence. Could you share some things with us about that, uh, as we had discussed earlier? Yeah, you know, President Kwame Nkrumah is uh, one of the most respected African statesmen. You know, uh, when you talk of... Uh, you know, people who have had a profound impact in the liberation movement in the continent of Africa, liberation from colonialism. And as we know, uh, most of Africa was uh, under European colonial powers. You know, many mm-hmm. countries were under British, others were under the German rule, others were under French, you know, and you had Belgium was involved, you know, and Portuguese. Uh, uh, so, so in the early 1960s, you know, people such as Kwame Nkrumah, who was actually pursuing his, uh, you know, PhD studies? I think he he, he had a PhD uh, from uh, you know universities here in the United States. Uh, he decided to go back home. He decided to go back to Ghana. Uh, you know, be, during the during that period that Ghana was still uh, you know occupied, was still a colony, and uh, you know he started this uh, liberation movement. You know, he put in jail several times, but he, he never gave up. Uh, and uh, he and he successfully uh, was able to uh, to help his people gain independence from uh, from uh, the Great Britain. You know, uh, mm-hmm. and and he played a significant role for many decades that followed. You know, to 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 liberate all the other countries in Africa. You know, they had this. The you know slogan or philosophy uh, of Pan Africanism, you know, mm. uh, 
President Kwame Nkrumah uh, was uh, on the same kind of ranking with other other strong, respected African statesmen. President Julius Nyerere of Tanzania, for instance, the first yes. president of, of, of Tanzania, Julius Nyerere. In Kenya, you had uh, you know strong strong leaders such as uh, Jomo Kenyatta, you know, oh, yeah. uh, who was put in jail many times by British colonial powers, but but somehow you know they were able to convince their people to rise up against the colonial powers, and and that led to independences for these countries. So so. You know, talking of Kuma, you know, Kuma decided to to leave his luxuries, if you may call it, you know, in the United States and go back to Ghana, even though he knew that it wasn't going to be an easy uh, journey. Uh, it ended into, as I said, you know, him being jailed and all that, but, but somehow he was able to liberate his people. And, and he has had, a, a, you know, a big impact in the continent of Africa. I should add that Nkrumah, for unfortunately, you know, didn't live very long uh, mm. because he was later on, you know, assassinated. His government was later on overthrown. You know, we talk of we talk of uh, the challenges that many of these African countries went through. They they these countries went through years of slavery, which took hundreds of years. You know. Slavery was abolished, and these countries were conquered by by European powers. So they went through many decades of colonialism, you know. So in the 60s, I would say maybe 80% of African countries became independent in the 1960s. Between 1960 and 1970, in between here, you know, over maybe 80% of these countries became independent. But, But what happened after that, you had a Cold War. And you had this uh, what 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 is called neo-colonialism, where where leaders who were not actually serving the people, puppet governments were put in place, which many of none of which were 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 run by military military leaders, who overthrew the governments that were elected, you know, civilian elected governments, which we, one of which was was uh, you know. Ghana and Nkrumah. So Nkrumah didn't live very long. He, his government was overthrown, and he was he was actually he was actually forced to go to exile, where he died uh, years later, I think in the, in the 70s. You know, so so Africa has gone through a lot of challenges, and uh, when we talk of uh, the problems we see today with violence and political instability, civil wars, all these have these legacies the slavery and colonialism legacy, and also these years after independence where these countries were actually were actually run by remote control, you know, through puppet leaders, most of whom took power by force. You know, we're talking of uh, leaders such as Mobutu of uh, Congo, Zaire, the former Zaire, which is now called the Democratic Republic of Congo. You know, mm-hmm. countries like Uganda, you had a dictator Idi Amini who killed, you know, many thousands of his own people. So, so, and, and this is the reason we founded this organization, to go back there and, and empower the people from the community level, from the grassroots level. Because so many people in Africa are so discouraged, you know, but, 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 but things are changing now. 
you know, mm-hmm. think Africa is better today than it was, uh, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, even five years ago for that matter. Interesting. A question I have, uh, we also mentioned how um, W.B. Du Bois uh, became an expatriate and moved to Ghana. He was a friend of uh, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, as you shared with me. I didn't know that. And um, he he became an expatriate, which was a precursor to many other Africans uh, born in here in America becoming expatriates. And uh, do you have that dynamic happening in Tanzania in terms of people of can descent from America migrating or returning to uh, Africa and your country being one of the countries? Very good question, Baba. Very, very interesting. Right before I came to the United States, I came here in 19, uh, 1998. Right before I came to the United States, 19, between 19, 1997, I, I kind of grew up in a town called Arusha in Tanzania. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 I, I I had a friend who introduced me to uh, an Amer- African American who made his home <laughs> at the outskirts of Arusha. There's there's actually a little township uh, or suburb of Arusha called uh, Usa River, which is U.S. River, U.S.A. River. They call it Usa River, U.S.A. River. <laughs> so so this brother this brother has lived in Arusha. In Usa River area, for since 1960s, and I actually, I actually was able to visit his his office. I was actually able to visit him, and I had a conversation. I, I forgot his name, you know, but I can get it. But but he he was sent. He was one of those people, one of the African Americans who were actually forced to flee in the 1960s. You know when you had uh, you had the Hoover jailing people. He, he, I think he was a member of Black, Black Panther, mm. Black Panther Party, and, oh, yes. and many, many people like this brother and many others immigrated to countries such as Ghana and Tanzania. Tanzania, you know, President Nyerere and Kuma were good friends, and uh, you know they were involved in this liberation movement. Also, you had this Back to Africa movement that you know goes back to. The 19th century in, the, in Black America, you know. Uh, so, as I speak to you today, there are African American brothers who are, who made home, who make their homes in Tanzania and elsewhere in countries such as Ghana, who ran away from uh, from being from the you know 60s, you know, because Black Panther was was uh, was actually made illegal and people were put in jail, you know, and uh, somehow. Countries like Tanzania welcomed these brothers. So W.E.B. Du Bois kind of fits in, into that category. He got frustrated with, uh, with you know, you know, you know, for those who uh, who have studied history, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois was the first African American to to get a Ph.D. from Harvard University, actually, and 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 he was one of the founders of, of NAACP. Yes, one of the founders of NAACP, and and they dedicated his life, all his life, fighting for freedom and and uh, and the end of segregation against black people in America. And somehow in the 60s, 
years leading to the 60s, he got frustrated, you know, and, and decided, somehow decided he needed to go to Africa. And, and Kwame Nkrumah, who had spent years in the United States prior to that, welcomed him. And, and Du Bois uh, was part of uh, the team of uh, people who put the education system, t- put together the education system in Ghana. You know, the, the system of education in Ghana today has W.E.B. Du Bois' hands in it. He, was, he, was, he played a pivotal role, uh, and he, he later died in Ghana, uh, you know, years later. I think in 1970s. You know, mm-hmm. he, 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 was, he, he, he died in Ghana. Um, so it's just one of the it's very interesting, these dynamics you mentioned, you know, the connection between the, you know, Africa and African-American experience. You see, and, and a lot of things are happening today as we speak. Mm. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I, I wanted to chime in about Angela Davis and Eldridge Cleaver, former Black Panthers, and how, uh, they went to various countries in Africa. I'm not, I don't remember the particular countries. Uh, but I'm going to take a break right now. I know we've been on for about uh, uh, three-quarters of an hour. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to take a break so the two of you can get a glass of water and, and just stretch for a little while. And we'll be back in a moment. Again, uh, you're listening to Grassroots Holistic Health Radio. I'm your host, Barbara Wesley Gray, with our two guests, uh, uh, Brother uh, Philip uh, Louisa and, and uh, Brother uh, Vincent uh, Mugawi. So thank you so much, uh, and we'll be back in a moment. has so many problems with the continent that is so rich in natural resources and 
And how much of that is due to the legacies of slavery and colonialism, in your opinion? I know you did touch upon that earlier, uh, Brother Vincent, but uh, would you care to elaborate more specifically in terms of why that is the case and what changes are happening right now and, and so forth? Yes. Uh, yeah, it, it, a lot of... Uh, there is a lot of misperception, misconception, that's the right word, uh, and, 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 and wrong perceptions about Africa. You know, when you, when you, you are very right, when you, uh, you watch your, you know, you, you tune in on your TV, you, you also, you're always uh, bombarded with these images of, uh, you know, war and uh, ethnic violence, you know, disease and hunger, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm not minimizing in any way, you know, that these things are, you know, actually happening. But I think the media tend to focus on those negative sides, you know, the, the, the bad news. <laughs> I know it's true here in America, too. It's always bad news that are being reported, you know. But, but Africa is changing a lot. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there have been, uh, it has been a long journey uh, of transformation. But 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 Africa is better off today than it, than than it, it it was ten years ago, you know, uh, twenty years ago. We still have a lot of work to do. We still have a lot of work to do because many of the governments that are in, in you know in office, uh, you know, critics uh, always argue that you know some of the government governments are not answerable to the people. You know, we talk of uh, issues of democracy, for instance, where you have the government for the for the people, for the people. You know, and in in in, in the most cases, uh, in some of these countries, you know, elections are often rigged. You know, and, you know, where you 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 go to vote, uh, you have some uh, tapped in ballot boxes that are already <laughs> in the ballot box, in the ballot room. You know. And, and, and oftentimes uh, the results are cooked, and uh, you end up having leaders that are actually not answerable to the people, you know. And uh, and and that that adds into some of the problems we have today. Uh, we have a problem with with uh, good governance uh, because of corruption. You know, there, there's a lot of there are a lot of resources in Africa. Almost every country, Tanzania, you you name it, Congo. I mean. You know, all these countries, you know, many of the problems need, can be avoided if, if, if you know, the rule of law and the democracy was happening, you know, but, but, but that, that is not the case. You know, and also there's the legacy, as I mentioned before, you know, of, of history, the, you know, the history of Africa. You know, Africa went through many, many generations of slavery, where, where, you know, men and women, strong and powerful men and women who, who would otherwise have contributed in building their communities were sent into America as slaves. Mm -hmm. Many, many millions of them died, you know, of, you know on, on route to, to America. You know, and those who were able to come here, you know, so you have, you have the descendants, you have the the African-American communities here now, and in the Caribbean, you know. So Africa was robbed of the of, of its manpower, I should add, you know. And, and then after slavery was abolished, 
you know, you had you had almost 100 years of colonialism, where mm-hmm. where this continent was divided among colonial powers. You know, in 1884 to 85, the Chancellor of Germany, by the name of Bismarck, called a conference in Germany that involved all these European powers. The aim was to partition the continent of Africa among these powers so that they don't fight with each other, you know, because they had started fighting over these colonies. And why were they fighting over the, these colonies? Because of the resources, the raw materials for their factories in the work of industrial revolution that was happening in Europe. You know, so Africa was dissected or divided up, partitioned among these powers, and borders were drawn. It used to be just one country, one community of black people. You know, that conference that happened in 1884 to 85 partitioned. They called it the Combo for Africa Conference. Partitioned mm. the continent of Africa, drawing borders between communities regardless of what was on the ground. So you have a community basically put into two. One going to another country, another going to another country when they made these borders. And, 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 and that's why you have problems today. Right? It's part of the reason. Because you have civil war, because some tribes have been, you know, put in a group that, you know, I guess these borders, borders didn't follow the composition, the ethnic composition on the ground. You know, and then, you, and then after, after, colonial, after colonial powers, you know, left, you know, in the 60s, I was talking before most of these countries became independent, you had puppet regimes <laughs> that were put in place there, you know, that, that, that you know, looted the resources of these countries for, for decades and decades. So, so you know, there are changes now. The, the 1990s, you know, has brought about, you know, this the so-called democratization process, where many, many of these countries now are, you know, making reforms, economic reforms, social reforms, political reforms. Tanzania became independent in 1961, you know, but we, have, we, we had a one-party system for all these years until 1995. From 1961 to 1995, you had a one-party in power. They would have elections, but the elections, people would, would, would vote yes or no. Among only only one candidate, you had you have only one candidate. The, the media was not free, the, you know. So so basically, I would say the government that was not for the people was not elected by the people for the people, and this is just mm-hmm. a representative of many of these countries in Africa, where you had you had uh, you know people in power for twenty years, thirty years. 50 years. We are, lo- we are looking at what is happening in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the northern Africa now, the so-called Arab Spring, where just recently Gaddafi, president of, uh, who was president of Libya for 42 years, was forced out. Was, well, he's dead now. The same thing happened in Egypt, you know, in, you know weeks earlier or a month, a month earlier, in Tunisia. You know, so people are taking people. Are, the change is happening. You know, so the, so there is a hope. There is a hope. Uh, there is a hope that you know things are going to get better. You know, mm-hmm. we have that 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 desire. 
we see that is that happening now. Uh, you know, I I think I might have answered your question. Mm, mm. Profound. Yes, indeed. Uh, the the um, taking advantage and the scheming and lying and conniving of those powers that be, the colonial powers, uh, that took advantage of our nature as Africans. We are giving people, um, you know, we gave birth to humanity. Uh, we gave birth and provided humanity with so many rich, rich resources as well as our knowledge, collective knowledge, uh, from mathematics to medicine, engineering, and uh, indeed commerce. And I mentioned the word commerce, I think of my brother Philip, uh, with you being a certified public accountant. Uh, indeed, the, uh, the director of finances for AFRICOD. I'd like you to share with me, Philip, what is your sentiments in terms of the economic structure that's about, that is evolving in Africa? Specifically, I just learned that uh, from you, uh, Vincent, that uh, you have a... Uh, a stock exchange that has uh, uh, been given birth to uh, and organized, and it's about to become very proactive. But, uh, Philip, what are your sentiments in terms of the economical structure and uh, the changes that are taking place uh, in your country of Tanzania as well as in Africa as a whole? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Leslie. Uh, yeah, this is something that's uh, been of a great focus with, in, with me, especially because I, you know, my, my background is in business, accounting, and finance. So, really, to see the economic growth that has been unprecedented in a lot of the African nations is is actually just breathtaking, and it's it's beautiful to see it actually in the, the beginning of its stage, really. And by beginning, I mean like in the first, you know, ten to fifteen years. You know, we, we're seeing basically a, a great similarity to our, you know, our, our Indian and Chinese brothers, who basically had an equal, you know, uh, growth spurt that occurred in, you know, the late 70s. And you know, as we now know, China has pretty much one of the largest economies, you know, right there with India, you know, doing the same thing. And mm -hmm. what really I think has been driving this growth is one is the. Uh, has been to touch on the fact that, you know, the younger generation, the people now are demanding more of their government and they're demanding more of the, their leadership uh, situation. And also the fact that we have been tapping into the resources of the technology boom. You know, uh, people haven't been, you know, touching on this as much as they should. Uh, Africa especially, you know, throughout the, the major nations that are growing, countries such as Tanzania, you know, have been able to use the technology such as cell phones to a level that's unprecedented. You know, there's such, uh, cell phones are basically everywhere throughout Tanzania and most of Africa. And this has become a major opportunity for business, communication, and dealing with almost every aspect of our life because, as uh, well known before, you know, it was a lot more difficult when it came to technology issues such as telephones and the computer age, but you know, with the affordability of computers and cell phones, we've seen Africa really touch that and really grow with it. You know, and this is creating a whole new generation of entrepreneurs. And this is mm. something, you know, Vincent and myself are very interested in is the fact that there are individuals out there on their own who are, 
you know, making a difference, starting their own businesses or giving back to the community. You know, uh, there are people, expatriates from, from who moved here uh, to the United States, got their education and work. Also, like Vincent, going back and saying, you know what, I could, you know, live my life in this certain way or I could give back to my community that gave me this chance. And, you know, people like Vincent are basically getting the rest of us where they're excited about actually doing something, about making a difference on our own. And, you know, that's a real push in uh, economic development is the fact that we now believe we can do this ourselves. And, you know, that's the kind of entrepreneurship that really drives true growth. You know, that's what you know, venture capitalists and people we will be courting in the future would be are going to be very interested when it comes to our nation that we have this great growth of human capital that could really mm-hmm. serve the rest of the world and is doing it in, on its own. Um, mm-hmm. As as um, as I touched on before, this is just a a bigger part of you know the change that's going on economically and politically throughout the world with you know things like Occupy Wall Street. You know, this is a, a, I guess this generation coming together and saying that. You know, we really can make a difference. I think a lot like your generation before us. You know, we st- you know started this process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask you about the Occupy Wall Street. I, I didn't realize until recently that it's uh, actually spreading not only from New York City and Wall Street, but through other parts of the United States and indeed other parts of the world. And uh, has it uh, spread into the motherland as of yet in terms of uh, that particular revolutionary, economic revolutionary uh, drive? I, I think, in my opinion, it has. It's been going on for the longest time. It started with, you know, young people and people in general just questioning the fact, why was the government being run in a certain way? Why did we only have a one-party system? You know, this, these it's the same idea behind the fact that a lot of the issues go back to economic issues. So we've we've had, I guess, yeah, I just say specifically Tanzania, our questioning of how the economy is run, how you know business is uh, accounted for. You know, people have demanded more governance, and that's very important when it comes to investments. Is the fact that you know your people are want to make sure that uh, you know uh, transactions that occur and deals that occur have you know real backing that there's something behind there. And this has been a major push throughout um, Africa, and it's really made a big difference, you know, with issues with contracts, you know, and all other sorts of business issues. And it's, I think it's basically that same idea that has, you know, is now in uh, the United States and throughout a lot of the develop, you know, the developed economies where people are now, you know, really asking bigger questions of other leaders. You know, it's just another part of the bigger picture of what we all are doing together, you know, working to make the world a better place, you know, mm-hmm. not just word only, but in action, you know, stepping up to the plate. Absolutely. And so, as you mentioned in your mission statement, uh, that uh, you transparency and and being honest and having a certain level, uh, the highest level of integrity and, and, and ethics uh, has to be something that's incorporated into our governance uh, of our countries in Africa and, indeed, throughout the world. Um, I, I also remember that one of your um, staff members happens to be someone who worked, she, I forget her name, but she worked within the telecommunications industry. Uh, could you share some thoughts about her? And, and that be, not being a coincidence, perhaps, as you talked about the cell phone industry being uh, a, a very fast-growing industry in, in Africa? 
Um, I guess when it comes to the staff, I'll pass that on to Vincent. Uh, he's more familiar with the rest of our staff. Yes, we you know Africord we are you know Africord is comprised of uh, you know as I mentioned before uh, the way we set this thing up is we we have uh, a board of directors uh, that has five members and and we have the executive uh, committee uh, that has you know five members as well. And, mm-hmm. and and many of these people, you know, we have a skill set that are varied, you know, from uh, accountancy, you know, like Philip is an accountant at CPA. You know, one of our board members is a, is a lawyer by training. And, and mm-hmm. she's, a, you know, a practicing uh, attorney in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and also works for Dar es Salaam Stock Exchange. You know, you you alluded earlier. You know, this is uh, you know Tanzania is now liberalizing its economy. They are doing these economic reforms and and uh, and the capital market development. You know, you know introducing this concept of stock market. <laughs> you know, you know we are we are we are all familiar with what is going on in the Wall Street. So now many of these countries, Tanzania is not an exception. Many of these countries, developing countries. Uh, liberalizing the economies. I I studied economics, you know, and I have done a lot of research, you know, in this area. Uh, so so in, in another person who you know is in our team is an IT specialist with a you know a bachelor's degree in computer science and a master's degree in computer information systems. Uh, from you know George 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 Washington University in uh, you know in Virginia, uh, in Washington D.C. area, you know his, his name is Degratius Nondi. He's actually based in Alberta, Canada. So Afrocode has you know just a group of people in Bridgeport, Connecticut. <laughs> you know we have you know part of our team is in Tanzania. You know as they said lawyers and all these other professions. You know, we have a gentleman in Canada. You know, we are here in the East Coast. And we the aim is, you know, for us to to brainstorm and, 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 and put our experiences and skill sets to work uh, by touching lives, by making a difference in the communities that we come from. I I started this, this organization. I founded this organization because I, in my mind, I still have these vivid memories of my childhood experience. You know, going to school, I never went to kindergarten. I, went to, I never went to kin- kindergarten. I was raising cattle in the bushes. You know, and started my first grade when, you know, at the age of nine. And the first two years, first grade and second grade, we were sitting on the floor, no desks. We didn't have hands to write on, we were basically writing on the floor. We will get into it outside in a field, you you make yourself a room and, and do your math there. Two plus five, seven, you erase and on the on the on the sand, on the ground. You know. So 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 I think I think I will, you know I have been blessed to to be able to come to the United States and pursue my bachelor's education and also master's degree. You know, mm. against all the odds. You know, as I, as, I, as I mentioned before during our conversations, uh, 
you know, yesterday or a day before. You know, my, my father couldn't afford to pay for my education in the United States. But somehow, you know, I believe in God. I mean, you know, God did miracles. I was able to come here and, uh, and achieve all the things that I've been able to achieve. You know, I, I graduated, I finished my master's degree in May 2011. And I was actually given an award as the best student of the year. You know, uh, so I look, I look, I look back and say, what am I using my skills? You know, what am I using my skills? You know, and, and going back to Africa, you know, by founding this organization, focusing on touching lives among those poor communities, those kids who don't have pencils, uh, who who cannot afford the you know five dollars, which would make a difference for the rest of their lives. So we have, we founded this organization. We're going to raise funds. We're going to do fundraising, and 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 hopefully, that we believe that is going to be possible. Touch lives, make a difference into the lives of these children. Uh, that's great. Well, we will make a difference. No question about it. Uh, I think that's part of what we are so excited about and have been since the year of uh, 2008 when uh, uh, President Obama was elected, um, and which leads me to my next question. Uh, I was just so encouraged, as you note, uh, I noted, rather, on my website. My website to the listening audience is www.drumsofchange.com. That's drumsofchange.com. And I have uh, various video, videos on my site, one particularly... Um, uh, dedicated to uh, the presidency of uh, uh, Barack Obama. And um, I have a video that I found on YouTube where he's, I think, in Ghana, and he's addressing uh, an audience of African leaders. Uh, it's, it seemed like there was a couple of hundred there, uh, perhaps representing all most of the countries in Africa. And um, he was talking about the fact that he was delighted that he was invited as their favorite son, to sort of speak, <laughs> but that his presidency uh, should uh, be interpreted not in terms of the first African-American president, but uh, a call to arms, a call to the task of those of us of African descent to uh, really step up to the plate and uh, to rise above uh, the differences that we have and to really challenge ourselves to not look for the leadership of him and his administration to make a change, but to force the change within ourselves. And, and I'm encouraged to hear uh, uh, a brother like yourself, Vincent, and Philip for that matter, uh, even though he hasn't expressed it, but the fact that you came from such a background and was able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, as the saying goes, and, and, and against all odds to excel academically as much as you have. And, uh, and with uh, Brother Philip being inspired and to follow suit, uh, as he shared with uh, us when he was visiting uh, uh, my home and we were having dinner together, uh, I'm encouraged. But uh, not to digress any further, I, I just would like to ask both of you, uh, what do you think of Obama's presidency as it relates to what your continent is going through? And do you think that Africa will get a better attention now that one of its offspring is in charge of the most powerful country in the world? 
That is a that's a an awesome question. Um, Obama is changing America, not only changing America, but but transforming the world. You know, America is the is the the only superpower now, after the end of uh, the Soviet Union. You know, America. What American president says has a huge ramification around the world. So what America, what an American, what an American president does has a huge impact in all these other countries around the world. So, so seeing Obama, Obama inspired me tremendously. Uh, you know, when he got elected, uh, actually during the campaign, I was still uh, in Washington, D.C. area. And I actually, I actually participated in his, in his campaign. I was yes. one of the volunteers in his campaign. We went around the you know, areas in Washington, D.C. area. You know, we're talking of Maryland, Washington, D.C., and Virginia. Knocking doors, encouraging people to come up, to come out to vote. You know, you know, you know uh, Baba, you know what went on during that time, where many people had uh, dismissed Obama, telling him that he was wasting his time. America was not ready for a black president. Not only a <laughs> black know. president... But America was not ready of a, of a president by the name of Obama. Not only that, but with the middle name of Hussein. And then, and then, and then adding that, <laughs> compounding that with the, the middle name of Hussein. And remember, you know, we were fighting a war with Iraq at that time. Yes. Which is, yes. is ending now. We were fighting against Saddam Hussein. So now yeah. you have somebody running for president who has the middle name of Hussein, which is a Islamic name. Mm-hmm. You know, people people were like, "Oh, there's no chance, no way." But but Obama, you know, kept on insisting that he believed he was going to make it. He believed, you know, deep down in his heart, that he was able and capable of becoming the president of the United States of America, even though. Yeah. We have never had a black president before. Even though we have never had a, a president with old names such as Obama, you know, and, and and he he has he has just by having him winning the presidency, has done a huge a huge impact in the black community. You know, we were talking before how the black people in this country and elsewhere have been traumatized by years of slavery, by years of discrimination, segregation, many years that they couldn't go to school. And those who were able to go to school, like W.E.B. Du Bois, like we mentioned, couldn't get a job. So mm. there, was no, really no, there was really no an incentive for one to go to school because even if you cheated through the system and somehow you were able to, to get an education, you couldn't get a job. Because America was not ready to hire black a black person, but Obama mm-hmm. is the president now, and he is changing America and he's changing the world. When when you see what is happening, look at what is happening in in not only in the world. Look at what is happening in the continent of Africa. You know, we we, we we just had huge things happening in the last five months. You know. Who, who, who ever thought 
you know, leaders such as Gaddafi, the most feared, ruthless, you know, will be taken out in a matter of weeks from mm. office. Whoever thought, you know, leaders such as Hussein Mubarak of Egypt, you know, who took over after, you know, Sadat was assassinated. He was, he was uh, Anwar Sadat's uh, vice president, and, and he became president after Sadat was assassinated. And he, he, he was the president for close to 30 years. You know, and in Egypt, you know, you, you had people being jailed just because they said something against the head of the state. You know, political freedom was inexistent, you know, and now Egyptians are actually celebrating. They are still having demonstrations now as we speak. Tahrir Square, they, you know, they're still demonstrating. But now the regime is out. And, and why am I saying this? President Obama, one of his foreign trips after he became president, was visiting Cairo. He had a speech in Cairo, Egypt, where he told, he spoke directly to the people of Egypt, especially directing his uh, speech to the youth, to the young people in, in Egypt, in the Middle East for that matter, that the years of not necessarily cynicism, but the years of complaining and, you know, were over. You know, that people were, were, you know, the time was now that people had to take responsibility and, and, and make a difference and change things in their own government. You know, mm. he, went, he, he later on went to, 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 to Turkey. He spoke uh, before the, the Turkish parliament in Istanbul and, it, it say, you know, giving them the same message. And, and because of those symbolic, you know, meetings and gestures, the Middle East is changing now. Egypt is mm. changing. You know, Tunisia just had it, you know, uh, just kicked out the dictator, you know, months ago. And, 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 you know, going back to your question, Obama is having a profound impact. He's, he's changing things here in America, you know, through some of the legislations he has passed. The health care legislation, you know, all these laws that he's passing, you know, that have to do with unemployment benefits, you know, the legislation that he, he, he passed, you know, that has to do with the financial system regulation, you know, and, and all these policies that are going on, you know, and, and um, America is changing, world, the world is changing, and Africa, for that matter, is, is changing because of Barack Obama. So the, the, the organization that you've created, AfroCard, could not be more timely, as it were. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, all things happen in divine order. There's no, there are no accidents. So uh, I'm just so grateful to the ancestors. I'm grateful to God for the blessings of us being brought together so that we can share with the audience, the listening audience, and amongst ourselves, uh, the the events that are taking place within uh, the world, and particularly within the African diaspora. Uh, I'd like to take a short break again. Uh, this more, but before I do that, I'd like to uh, uh, have my wife uh, share with us, being that this show is Grassroots Holistic Health, uh, that indeed we should share as much time as possible when we're talking about economics, politics, uh, the political arena, uh, our community, 
that we deal with something that I think is very, very important. You cannot fight a war. You cannot be a peaceful warrior. You can't be a, a change of, 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 of any significance if you're not healthy. So at this point, I'd like to just invite my, my wife to share with us her mission with regard to the illness, uh, the disease of diabetes, which is an epidemic proportion here in the United States, and I might say uh, within the African diaspora. Uh, so, uh, yes, hon, could you share with us some thoughts? Oh, yes, thank you for inviting me on the show. And again, I extend warm greetings to our guests, Vincent and Philip. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank and, you for having and, us. Oh, the pleasure is ours. But, you know, Vincent, you were just talking about um, health care as it relates to politics and economics and I will just kind of piggyback on that with what I'm about to say regarding diabetes. Um, many of our listeners know that on December 23, 2009, I was diagnosed with diabetes in a very traumatic way. I ended up in the hospital emergency room and from the emergency room ended up in intensive care and I almost died as a result of not knowing that I was diabetic and that was something that I talk about on my show earlier this morning. Now, where that relates to, well, I'll just talk about the good part first, and then I'll talk about the economics and the political ramifications of diseases such as diabetes. Um, I was sent home from the hospital with insulin, and I was told that I had to inject myself with insulin four times a day. Now, anyone that knows me, knows that that was not going to happen, at least not on a long-term basis. I don't have space in my life for that. And my husband and I set about finding a cure for me because I, I just wasn't willing to deal with that. I, I just think that's, that's amazing. Anyone that has been injecting themselves with insulin so that they could stay alive and they've been doing it for a long period of time, um, you know, it's time for a change. Um, I was told that diabetes is basically a lifetime disease. The doctors told me you'll never get rid of it, and for the rest of your life, to stay alive, you have to administer insulin yourself. My husband and I set about looking for naturopathic doctors, and we're very spiritual, as you know, and we were led indirectly through Dr. Maladoma Somme um, to a naturopath doctor who assisted me in reversing diabetes, which I was told I couldn't do by the medical doctors, but the spiritual people know that that's not true. So when we talk about, I like to use the word spiritual technology, spiritual technology far more surpasses any type of scientific technology that exists. And uh, there's actually no one that can dispute me with that fact because I've lived it. So I'm aware of now, now where we get to, um, and incidentally, um, just to end on a happy note with what happened, uh, the long and short of it is I am no longer administering insulin to myself. I have reversed diabetes and basically cured it within myself through the help of many wonderful people, and uh, none of them were medical doctors. So that's kind of unfortunate, but that's reality. Uh, medical doctors are not trained to 
cure you, they're trained to treat you so that they can stay in business. Yeah. Now, statistics show that within the next decade, it's predicted that one out of two or 50% of Americans will be diabetic. Um, insulin and oral medications is a, I, I believe it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. It used to be a multi-billion dollar, but I think now it's escalated to a trillion dollar industry. So in keeping it real, they don't want us to get well. They want us to, quote, unquote, maintain the disease so that they can stay in business and profit from it. So what my mission is, is to get everyone healthy. And uh, I, I have used myself as a guinea pig. I have proven it. Other people have proven that both type 1 and type 2 diabetes can be reversed. Um, type 2 diabetes definitely can be cured. Type 1 Many people are able to be cured of it, but some people who were born with it might still have to administer insulin, but just not as much. Now, a wake-up call was when I first came home from the hospital. The night that we were released, they gave me a prescription for insulin. Now, fortunately, by the grace of the Most High, my place of employment, um, I have insurance, but... I didn't know that I was going to end up in the hospital. I've, I've never been sick or hospitalized in my life, so an insurance card is not something I tend to carry around with me. It was at home, and my husband didn't know where it was. So when we went to get my prescription, which was just one month of insulin, I didn't have my insurance information, so we had to pay for it out of pocket. And the cost for one month of insulin was $949. That's for one month. Wow. So that's wow. astronomical because wow. what about people who are suffering from diabetes who might not be as lucky as I was and have insurance because eventually I was able to get reimbursed from some of the costs and I didn't have to pay for the hospital bill, which it turned out was over $30,000. And because I have insurance, I paid 300 and the insurance paid the rest. But that's amazing, and people are dying. People are not being treated because they might not have insurance. And people who do have insurance are being given medication which can kill you. The medication that was given to me caused me to have heart palpitations. So basically, mm -hmm. lowered my blood glucose level, but I could have had a heart attack. So it's kind of like, you know, you have a choice, which way do you want to die? Mm -hmm. So people are not, um, of course, the Food and Drug Administration is not going to endorse the natural cures, which were herbs, which I used. I used mm -hmm. natural herbs. Some of them were liquid herbs, which a woman that lives in the neighborhood, she's an herbologist, and she makes it. And she mm -hmm. had made it for me, and I drank it, and I was drinking it for a few weeks, and in a few short weeks, I no longer needed to inject myself with insulin. That's being kept very quiet, um, if not even being ridiculed, because we're not supposed to know that you don't need to be a slave to the pharmaceutical industry. So, you know, I, I could probably talk about this all night and, you know, and, and throw out all types of statistics and whatnot, but I don't want to monopolize the show. And... Um, you know, I'm going to end now, but that is my mission. And um, my website is spiritchange.com. 
It's one of my websites, and the other website geared specifically towards diabetes is the new diabetessolution.com in which I market an organic herbal formula which was designed by a man from Nigeria who found that he was diabetic and his family had the resources to hire a chemist who produces this for, who produced the formula for him and I now market it as well after using it and the formula most people, including myself, can attest that it will lower your blood sugar within three days. So that's thank my mission so in a nutshell. Thank you for having me yeah, on the thank show. You. And, thank you for you know, sharing. I hope I was not too lengthy with, no, with no, what no, I we needed was to talking hear, about. We needed to hear that story. The audience needed to hear that story. And I'm sure um, Brother Vincent and Philip can appreciate what you just shared. Um, and I know that part of your mission uh, is to... Uh, make it so that water is available uh, to your 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 um, brothers and sisters in Tanzania uh, to, to start, and of course other countries in Africa. Uh, and we hope to be a, a, a significant part of that solution and to be able to direct funds and and support in that area. I just wanted both of you to know that my wife and I are committed to that. Absolutely. So uh, it's. You know, not just a thing of us having diabetes, but there's some of us, such as in your country, who can't even get access to water and uh, and and food as well. So that's something that really strikes home um, in terms of the needs of our community. So thank you so much, hon. Oh, for, and thank for you. You're, You're welcome. welcome. Thank you yes. so much. Yes, that was that was very powerful. That was very powerful and inspiring. Uh, you know, coming from Africa, you know, uh, most Africans rely on herbal medicine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Curing for many of the diseases, you know. Uh, but, but you know, your wife, you know, you know, hit it in the bullseye, you know, that you have the the medical technology or the medical systems out there that is designed, the insurance connected to the system. That is designed actually to to make people dependent on these medicines. Absolutely. And they they cost a lot of money. And it becomes yeah. a cycle. People need medications for diseases that really could be cured, you know, traditionally by herbal medicine. You know, yeah. holistically. You know. So listening to your wife speak, I mean it was very, very, very touching for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm happy you you responded and such because uh, uh, that's one of the things that we shared with uh, the audience when we had uh, Brother Maladoma on our show. Uh, And as my wife was talking about the technology, spiritual technology, uh, the the technology that so many of our brothers and sisters who were born in Africa but come here to the West, and they, they leave that knowledge back home and embrace the 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 uh, technology that is westernized and that for the most part sometimes it's not really for our, uh, you know, the benefit in the long run, in, in long term, perhaps in short term. So that's something that, you know, we can talk about in a, in a future show uh, in terms of uh, combining the best of, of technologies. Yes, indeed, if one has... Uh, uh, an injured leg or a limb that needs to be to have surgery done to it, and 
and, uh, you know, a transplant needed and so forth. Uh, yes, modern technology, Western technology, medical technology can be a, a terrific asset because, uh, uh, indeed, that's something that's advanced. But uh, for most of our illnesses, the herbal, the, the indigenous techniques of healing is something that I think should be reconsidered by many of us so that, indeed, those of us who cannot afford to pay and afforded, uh, cannot have access to insurance can have access to that information free of charge. And uh, I'm thinking of Nelson, Man I mean, not Nelson Mandela, but uh, Michelle Obama, who has an initiative, as you both know, geared towards health, particularly towards our children. And, of course, I'd like to have you share some thoughts about that uh, uh, with regard to not only her husband, uh, Barack Obama, being uh, a, a, a force to reckon with in terms of leadership and innovation and insightfulness in terms of the, the direction of our country here in the United States and, indeed, the world, but for his, his wife, the First Lady, uh, to make this an issue because we have uh, our children are our most important asset. So what are your thoughts about that, uh, uh, to both of you, anyone who would like to chime in at this point. Philip, you want to chip in? Um, okay. Um, yeah, the thing is that I've actually, I was thinking of uh, earlier, and so it's, it's a great coincidence that this came up, is that Michelle Obama herself is, as you said, a, a force to be reckoned with, you know, Princeton education, lawyer in her own right, you know, with uh, tons of accolades. And so she brings to the forefront a really big issue and, you know, just with her sheer presence and her intellect really getting us to talk about, you know, things that we don't think about when it comes to education is how, you know, our children are fed in that sort of way and also well, where does their where does the education focus? You know, mm -hmm. creating an education that makes us not only well-rounded but actually, you know, it's an applicability to what we do every day. You know, these are things that, you know, teachers especially, I know your wife uh, you, was a teacher, and so she'll, you know, uh, you know, back me up on this, but the fact that, you know, we have a lot of issues going on with education, and some, it sometimes gets pushed to the, you know, the background when it comes to other issues like the economy, you know, and defense. But uh, education is incredibly important because at the end of the day, the future of all our nations, regardless of where we're from or what we believe in, are our children. So, it's a it's an investment that you know you can't push to the background without suffering the consequences, of which we're seeing right now because you know America itself, as we know, is uh, you know, slowly digressing in its uh, education quality in comparison to the rest of the developing world, and you mm -hmm. know this is a, a, a you know product of the continuous cycle that has been going on for the past couple of you know almost decades I could say when it comes to focusing on other areas and ignoring education. And so, mm -hmm. as, you know, as I think she would uh, agree with me that this is something that has to be brought to the forefront and it's something that, you know, us at AFRICOM especially are very focused on because, you know, education is the you know, the, be the best commodity we have, you know, to fighting almost any issue that's there. You know, if you don't have an educated, you know, group of citizens, you don't really have a group of citizens that's going to move forward. So, you know, uh, I guess that's just my view on the subject. Wonderful, wonderful input. Yeah, uh, yeah I'd like to, uh, to jump in on the commenting on Obama, uh, Michelle Obama. 
she uh, she is really doing a lot of things. Uh, I think she has decided that to take on this issue of uh, healthy eating uh, by by actually promoting gardening. I mean, she in the White House, she she has this garden, you know, where you know she's you know planting vegetables and whatnot. You know, and 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 also going beyond that. You know, going through communities and schools and encouraging that diets be changed. You know, because you know, as, as your wife mentioned, uh, the, a lot of people in this country are dependent on drugs and also on health food, on healthy food. You know, fast food. Yeah, America is a, is an obese society. You know, people suffering from uh, you know overweight issues in there, and those do affect people's health. You know, diseases that you know people suffer from. You know, heart-related problems. A lot of these have to do with the diet that we eat. You know, so 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 Obama is doing some you know things in the in the political arena. You know, making political and economic and you know what have you changes. And it's great that his wife is actually, you know, you know, joining him in that effort by directing her effort in in what she's doing, promoting mm-hmm. healthy eating and diet, and also exercise. You know, you, you know, as I mentioned before, being a president of a country, you you, you have a, a bigger audience. You know, whatever you say as the president is listened to. Whatever you say is the first lady gets a lot of people listening. And 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 Miss Obama, Michelle Obama, the first lady of the United States, is using that platform very well. Absolutely, absolutely. I like what you said about exercise because, as you know, we both are runners. I know that you uh, jog. Um, uh, Vincent, I'm not sure about Philip. You haven't shared with me your particular sport orientation or uh, workout, if you do, orientation. But uh, you seem like you're in good shape as well, Philip. Uh, Uh, Thank you. Yes, indeed. Uh, I'm a marathon runner and uh, ran my sports marathon last uh, last year. I didn't run this year, but I'm training for next year. And... um, I, I'm really just encouraged about Michelle Obama emphasizing uh, health and exercise and, and eating practices. Uh, when she they moved into the White House, the first thing that she did uh, major towards health was to create a, a um, an organic vegetarian vegetation um, garden, and I, I really applauded that move because, as you know, uh, what the first lady and the president does is a lot of times emulated by um, the, the, the masses, as it were. <laughs> so, uh, yes, that's that's something that I'm really encouraged about. And uh, speaking about uh, the, the teaching, and and um, I wanted to ask you, Vincent, how did you, um, well, what do you teach actually at the University of Bridgeport, and how did you happen to end up there? Uh, we don't have much time. We have about 15 minutes left. So if you just can give us a uh, a brief uh, 
uh, input in terms of that area of, of your life? Well, after finishing my master's degree, um, you know, in, uh, in, in May, uh, you know, they somehow was offered the position there uh, to teach, uh, to work as an instructor, an adjunct professor. I teach a class called Human Security, uh, Human Security slash International Relations. Human Security, is, is, there's a new concept now, you know, that that promotes this idea of uh, empowering the people, empowering the individuals from the community level, from the family level to the community level, you know, you're empowering the communities through education, through economic opportunities, through through, you know, provision of health services and what have you, you know, with the idea of having a, you know, the aim of having a stronger community, you're going to have a stronger state, you're going to have a stronger nation as a result. You know, so this concept of human security, you know, directs, and this really applies not only in the developing world, but also, you know, in developed world as well, developed countries as well. You know, United States of America is uh, the most advanced and uh, developed country in the world, the world superpower. But you still have a lot of problems. You have a lot of issues going on in the communities. You know, you can have a strong nation, but, you know, oftentimes the communities that make up that nation are not as powerful as, as they should be. You know, so, so I teach this class issues that are addressed have to do with development and peace issues, mostly, you know, with the focus being directed on developing world, you know. They have been there uh, for many years, you know, there have been aid, foreign aid, donations, <clears throat> you know, donor community giving money to, to most of these countries by giving the money to the state, by giving the money to the top government, you know. So now... They're thinking of redirecting that instead of giving these, you know, contributions to the state, you know, the focus is now empowering the community, you know, and then with the, with the hope and aim of having a, a strong, you know, nation as a result. So that, that is what I teach, um, the human security class. Wonderful. Wonderful. I must share with the listening audience that, uh, I am an African drummer, and uh, like uh, Brother Vincent, I campaigned for uh, Barack Obama. Uh, indeed, my wife and I, uh, she campaigned and, and, and was involved with uh, joining me at fundraising events. And one particular fundraiser I went to, I bought the African drum, uh, the djembe. And uh, uh, Lisa Lang was a keynote speaker, and I found out that... Uh, the uh, financial uh, organizer, the financial director of Obama's New York, uh, his campaign in the New York uh, sector, uh, Terrence Yang, uh, graduated with Obama uh, from Harvard Law School. And I had the pleasure of meeting him. And, um, and then another individual who uh, graduated of the year before, before him, who happens to be a, uh, a CFA, a certified financial analyst, uh, went to school with Warren Buffett's son, one of his sons, and is a devotee of Warren Buffett in terms of long-term 
uh, investment. Um, and that's another show that perhaps, Philip, you can share some insight with in terms of uh, how one can properly manage their money and, and, and deal with investments and so forth, especially with uh, the advent of uh, the, the stock market, the stock exchange um, um, being developed within your country of Tanzania. Um, but again, uh, yes, I, I did play the African drum at that fundraiser, and most of the people there were of uh, European descent and Asian descent. A lot of them were Japanese from the media. And um, it was a very uh, surreal experience for me. Uh, amongst my particular peer group, I uh, was looked upon as being somewhat of a oddball, uh, an unrealistic, unrealistic optimist that I was campaigning for Obama, and I felt that he had a chance to win. And, of course, at this fundraiser, this was during his primary when he was running against Hillary, and they felt that he, hadn't, he didn't have a chance to win the primary. <laughs> so, indeed, as we know, he won. And, uh, of course, uh, then they began to change their tone. One of our neighbors even made a statement, uh, they're not going to let a black man in that White House. You know, who are you kidding? Stop wasting your time. But Spirit told me, the good Lord... God just spoke to me in so many ways that, indeed, this was a time of change. Thus, I created the website, my, my company's name, Drums of Change, Drums of Spirit. And if you go to my site on the first page, uh, to the listening audience, I told you and uh, Vincent, you and Philip, uh, that, indeed, there's a recording of me uh, playing on YouTube of me uh, playing the drum at Obama's inauguration. I went with a host of activists uh, from New Jersey, New Jersey City, and we could not step away, regardless of the cold weather and so forth. We had to go to the inauguration. So there's a recording of me playing the drum and an impromptu drum circle that is formed uh, chanting Obama's name as he was sworn, after he was sworn in. But more importantly, I was there to pay homage to our ancestors, to those um, who were uh, forced immigrants, commonly called slaves, who actually were responsible for those grounds, those sacred grounds uh, of the White House and the surrounding area, uh, to pay homage to them that indeed uh, we had a, a man of African descent who is now the President of the United States. So I just thought I would share that. Um, I, I will share some other things when you're on the show about the fact that I come from humble beginnings. Uh, one of the uh, close friends, I have a spiritual brother, uh, Abby Aduno uh, Iwoli from the uh, Last Poets, and one of their famous, favorite, uh, famous poems is that the revolution won't be televised. Well, indeed, we find that that's not true. You know, it is being televised. And in, in our participating on this show tonight, is that it may not be televised only, but indeed we have the capacity to share throughout the world such knowledge that the two of you have shared with us this evening. I want to thank you so much for that. Uh, and then I'm looking forward to uh, us com uh, continuing our conversation uh, and, and working together and indeed uh, being a change, a positive change for our brothers and sisters throughout the diaspora the African diaspora. So thank you again, Vincent and Philip, for uh, being my guests. 
Thank uh, you very much, Baba, for having us. We yes, really, thank really you so appreciate much. and enjoy. Yes. Okay, so uh, indeed, we won't make it a long t- uh, period of time before you come on again. And uh, I, I'd like to uh, indeed uh, mention before we end the fact that uh, the language of your country happens to be a language that's incorporated uh, within the celebration of Kwanzaa, which is uh, not too far away uh, from this day to be celebrated. Uh, Could you share with us very briefly about uh, the language that's spoken in your country of Tanzania, to Tanzania? Yes. uh, Yeah, we speak uh, Swahili, uh, it's also known as Kiswahili. Uh, Kiswahili is actually one of the major languages uh, in the continent of Africa. When you talk of a, a, maybe the world, the widely spoken language in Africa, you know, Swahili will come, you know, to the top of the list. And, mm. and much so because, much so because it's a language that is uh, used uh, in more than six countries in the continent of Africa. You know, Swahili is a combination of uh, of Bantu African languages, and it also has uh, some German in it. It has some a lot of Arabic in it. It has some Portuguese words in it. You know, it, 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 it's a blend of uh, of many languages that you know evolved over the generations. You know, the first people to uh, to visit. Tanzania and much of the the East African uh, shores were were you know Arab traders from Yemen and Oman and, you know Saudi Arabia and that part of the world and, and, mm. and when they came in they came in as traders looking for you know tasks you know the the you know we talk of poachers you know people killing these wild animals. The traders, you know, they came uh, after tusks, the elephant tusks and rhinos, and, and and also they went deeper into the African mainland, you know, the African mainland, you know, uh, in search of uh, of minerals, you know, you know, copper, diamond, and and as a result, for many many years that followed, this language started evolving, and and today. You know, it's one of the major languages, you know, in Africa, Kiswahili. And mm. it's actually a national language in Tanzania. It's a national language in Tanzania. And it's also a, a, a national language in Kenya and Uganda. It's also used in Rwanda and Burundi and, 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 and probably half of the, of the Congos you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm. Uh, and, and it has, you know, you mentioned, you asked me a question earlier, you know, as to what is happening in Tanzania politically and, uh, you know, in terms of peace and, and all that. You know, Tanzania is very different from many Africans in, in, the, in many countries in Africa uh, because you are surrounded by countries that went through, uh, you know, horrendous uh Civil wars, you know, like we had a war in, in, in they had a war in Rwanda, for instance, 1994, between the two tribes, the Hutus and Tutsis, where 
you know, in a matter of 90 days, nearly close to a million people were massacred in a, mm. in a genocide. And and, 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 and and many of these, you know, some of the things that have to do with this is the fact that many countries in Africa, you know, including the countries that are going through, uh, you know, difficult, uh, you know, times now in terms of uh, instability, like Somalia and Congo and Angola and all that, is the fact that many of these countries didn't have and do not have the national identity in terms of language. Uh. So Tanzania, the first president of Tanzania mentioned earlier, Julius Nyerere, did a very good job promoting the use of Kiswahili as the national language. Now, Tanzania is comprised of more than 120 tribes, speaking, obviously, more than 120 tribal languages. You know, mm. But we are unified. We are all integrated and unified by one common national language, and that is Swahili. So Kwanzaa mm. is the way it's a, it's a Swahili word for first, Kwanzaa. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that to you before, about the church that I go to here in Bridgeport, where they have this, uh, you know, celebration of African heritage, you know, where they will, you know, they have these programs where, you know, they, 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 they're having these shows designed and making use of a lot of Swahili words. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually playing an active role into that, you know, trying to, uh, because I realize a lot of people now, especially, uh, the African American brothers and sisters, you know, trying to reconnect with the with the with the continent, with the mainland, you know. You know, through various forms. You know, people are, people go to visit and, and they also uh you know, they search for uh, this identity, you know. And uh, and uh, and uh, in the schools that I've been teaching in uh, in Stanford, I sometimes come across uh, students using Swahili names, you know. <laughs> you know, African American children, you know, using Swahili and so it's, it's, it's really amazing, yeah. So, yeah, that's well, that's all I have to say about uh, Swahili and uh, and it's uh, okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. We're down to two minutes. I appreciated all that you shared, especially this piece about Key Swahili and how uh, indeed many of us here in the Western Hemisphere, particularly the United States, can connect with that as we celebrate Kwanzaa. I also want to share the fact that I have uh, a, link, a link on my website, drumsofchange.com, where I sell African drums. And my intention is to have every uh, person, every family of African descent to have a drum in the home so that that will be a vehicle that we can have a conversation, such as we had this evening, about our brothers and sisters throughout the African diaspora so we can come together as one. I have a closing prayer, and that is we are grateful to the one most high, to God, for being ever-present in our life. We thank you for giving us the wisdom and the ability to use the tools which we so gracefully provide so that our lives can be fruitful and complete. We ask that you open the eyes of those who may be suffering from illness, disease, poverty, homelessness, hatred, unforgiveness, grief, poor self-image, lack of spiritual connection, and any other malady, and allow them to see and understand that they have the power to change their circumstances through their connection with you, O Lord. 
allow them to see that it is you who will lead them to the people, places, and things which can bring about their needed change. We thank you, and again, we are grateful. Namaste, shalom. Salam alaikum, one love, peace, and blessings. God bless you all. Thank you, my brothers, Philip and Vincent. Until we meet again, we say peace and love and God bless.